Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, I am delighted to have Colleen Stanley on the show. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Colleen is the President and Chief Strategy Officer at Sales Leadership, Inc. Tell me a little bit about what Sales Leadership, Inc. does. I'd love to hear what you do. We're a sales development firm, and I would say where we specialize is in incorporating emotional intelligence skill training with consultative sales training and sales leadership training. So we teach the sales IQ, and we teach the sales EQ. Brilliant. That does very much get at our topic of the day, which will be all around how emotional intelligence, which is EQ, supports hard selling skills. Before we do that, I, I'd actually love to start with a question I think a lot of people end with. Uh, other than the couple that you've written, what's your favorite sales book of all time? And, and what are maybe one or two of the key takeaways from that book? One of my favorite sales books, and it's not a new one, it was written by Joe Conrath years ago, Selling to Big Companies. And I list that one because I think it was the one that was written in a fashion that I could finally understand and actually apply some of the knowledge. So I remember her mentioning in one of her chapter trigger events, and I was just fascinated by this. I'd never heard the term. And so I would have to say that's uh, one of the books. And if I had a number two, it would be Just Listen by Dr. Mark Golston. I think it's one of the best books on teaching empathy out there in the market. Jill's book is brilliant. And it's it's funny, what's old is, is new again. I, I keep quoting from some of Jill's work. I keep quoting from Neil Rackham's work. And if you didn't know that the, some of those books, and Neil Rackham's in particular, were written at least three decades ago, you would think that they were, they were true today. And the trigger-based selling, I'm sure someone will write a book if they haven't already with that title. While we're on that topic, what are some examples of triggers that you would look for in a sales process? Well, I will tell you right now, the uh, whole world is one big trigger event, right? Between the pandemic, uh, some of the trickle-down effect of that. So one of the things that we're looking for is a trigger event is really probably the psychographic of a company where we've got companies that know they need to change and they're willing to change. So these are companies that frankly aren't in denial, but they're saying, okay, if we've got to teach people new selling skills, we've got to change our field salespeople to know the blended skills of inside selling and field selling, that's where we're playing. So I would say it's as much psychographic combining with that trigger event of who's the attitude that's really sitting there going, okay, the world's changed. We're out of shock, blame, and denial, and we're moving forward. I also think of, I mean, even pre-pandemic, I guess, I often thought of trigger events. And I, I've talked to companies who tried to build their entire sales motion exclusively around trigger events, and they found that there just aren't enough of them. And what I mean by that is, for example, a uh, executive change, right, or a new product announcement. Those are the more traditional trigger events. And yeah, there just aren't enough of them. So yeah, you want to capitalize on them when they come, but I don't think you can build an entire outbound engine off of them. Do you agree, disagree with that thesis? I do. And that's why I bring up the term psychographic, because to me, when I really analyze, and when we work with customers on this, on a win-loss, I'll say, where are you winning? And it's really often boiling down to the attitude of the company and the culture. And so, you know, obviously for us, regardless of the trigger event, we're going to win with companies that actually value learning. I mean, these are people that they're like you studying the books, reading the books and practicing it. That tends to be where we win business. We actually win with fast growth companies too, because 
generally some of your best salespeople and sales leaders out there are pretty disciplined. So they like process. So even if they are a fast growing company that maybe, you know, didn't have a methodology, they're the ones that partner with us because they say, okay, we're at a point where we've got to start duplicating this, what we say, what we do and how we do it. Do you think it's that companies have psychographics or it's that the people who are in the companies have a a particular culture and psychographic to the decision makers? I'd say it's a combination of both, but it is going to start at the top, right? Because of what I've seen, and here's where I, I will play devil's advocate here. I have seen a lot of sales leaders, let's say learning is a big psychographic for us. We are going to get hired by people that value learning. However, Here's where the disconnect can happen. Often when they're hiring, they're not vetting candidates for their ability or aptitude to learn. So that's where if you don't have people that you've hired that have that same desire, then that psychographic goes away. But I would say it really starts at the top. You got me on one of my topics I love, which is all about hiring. So if that is an important characteristic, how would you actually vet people during the hiring process to figure out whether they were truly learning centric? Well, first of all, I put it in your hiring guide and then backing up, I would ask, do you have a hiring guide, right? Because a lot of people don't have a defined interview guide for a position. So that's number one. But here's some of the questions I would ask. Tell me about a time when you invested in your own training, your own learning. Tell me what you do each week, each month to remain relevant. And how does that play out in customer conversations? Tell me about a time when you've sought mentors or sought to be a part of a mastermind. Because what I've also seen with a learning attitude, these people generally are fairly humble because they're not arrogant. I mean, there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. So humble people generally know, yeah, I'm really smart. I'm confident. But I also know somebody else knows something that I don't know. So I find there's a combination that you're looking for in that learning attitude. I had someone I once worked for a few companies back who was a bit on the arrogant side. And I remember this person being a little condescending toward the fact that I read all these business leadership management sales books all the time. And his justification for it was, I don't want to read those books because I want to think different or think differently, I guess. There's a plus and minus. Like One is that this person does zig while others zag, and there's value to that diversity of thought. And then the flip side of it, obviously, is they're they're not learning in the way that one would traditionally think. How would you react to that sort of individual? Well, so I think he's got a good point, right? You can become a repeater, so you don't have an original thought, right? And then sometimes what you start doing is you actually think you came up with the original thought, which is not great if you're in authoring or speaking. But here's the however. I would say people that are great readers also must have or develop ideation, where I can read something, but then I connect it to something else and make something new. And so I think that becomes the power of reading is, okay, if I've read this, now how does this translate to my life? Or how does this translate to business? And then that creates new thought for me. So a book I just uh, wrapped up on is uh, titled Denial. And it's written by uh, Robert Tedlow. He's a professor at Harvard. So it's all about these case studies of really smart CEOs that didn't see the market changing, didn't see the pivots, whatever we want to call it. Well, it's got me taking a look at what blind spots am I not seeing? Who can point out a blind spot? Who am I not listening to? You just take an idea and then you ideate it. I wanted to go into the blind spots thing and I guess put this to you, which is, 
what do you think is, you know, since you are thinking about this denial concept and, and how CEOs and other leaders miss things in the sales community, let's say in the B2B sales community, what do you think the, the biggest blind spots are that might transform the world of selling over the next three to five years? I do think for a lot of face-to-face sellers, and we know it's been moving to inside sales. There's a lot of big SDR teams that are quite successful. But I think some of your field salespeople are actually sitting there going, I wish the good old days would come back. And frankly, they're not going to come back. I do think it's going to be blended selling. So I think there can be a denial point on both sides. Sometimes I think people in inside or SDR never get out in the field enough, even when this all opens up. But I do think for our field salespeople, they will need to learn those new skills. Whether you like it or not, get really good at uh, running video conference calls. Uh, You may have to present your proposal idea, recommendations through a demo format at the right time, right place to the right person. So I think there can be denial on both sides that, hey, we don't need to see people. And I do think there's power, a lot of power in that. And then there is, hey, maybe we can use these other avenues. I'd also say denial is one that I've seen with CRM tools. You know, I think CRM tools, for some reason, has taken away a lot of coaching because people start confusing looking at data And that's what I call deal review with deal coaching. So data is great and you're excellent at it, but what's the data telling you? And then what does that data tell me that I need to coach? And coaching is saying and doing, let me hear you say it. And so we were talking about how role-playing, frankly, in some organizations is good and in some it's just flat out gone away. And I wonder if that's the blind spot with, hey, I've got a CRM tool. It's telling me everything I need to know. I mean, I guess I could take the counter position on role-playing, having led and participated in many of them over the years, that role-playing is something that was extremely necessary in the days when you couldn't record a call, for example, right? And you didn't have that sort of management leverage that the only way to coach was to jack into someone's phone system and listen to countless voicemails and hang-ups until you actually got a call that was coachable. Do you feel that the place of role-playing may be diminished in a world where we can record calls? Well, I think there's two types of role-plays. The one that you're talking about, which is great, which technology is augmenting, is debriefing a call. I contend that we need to pre-brief as many calls as debrief. Debriefing is very important. Hey, what'd you say? You paused here. You stepped on the uh, prospects. You didn't let them finish the sentence or finish the sentence. Pre-briefing is, what are you going to say when they say this? What are you going to say when you say this? And you actually see if the seller can execute the skill before they get on a call. So I like to see a combination of pre-briefing. And as the coach, I'm going to elevate that coaching. And I'm going to do some green diamond, make it easy, do a say and do. Then I'm going to put a little bit more pressure on it. And then I'm going to start lobbing obstacles and objections. And so I'm going to increase the pressure point before they get on a call. So I create a simulation as close to the real situation. Got it. So those two types of role play were the pre-brief and the debrief, I, I, I presume, right? Yes. Got it, got it. And I find a lot of managers miss the pre-brief. Now, see, they call it pre-call planning. See, pre-call planning is not pre-briefing and pre-role playing. It's, see, you're looking at data. What are you going to say and do? Let me hear you say it. Because I think if there's one thing that surprised me after getting into sales training, you know, you do this wonderful job of teaching something, right? And they do a few role plays, but then they come back. And I remember the first time I heard this, Jeremy, where somebody said, that's not working. And I thought, wow, it's, it's just such a great skill. And I said, well, let me hear what you said. 
it was nothing close to what I had taught in the classroom. So it's not because the seller isn't buying in. They simply think they're saying and doing the right behavior. And in many cases, it's not because they haven't had the, quote, 144 times of repetition. I think that's a really good transition around our topic we've been dancing around, which is emotional intelligence, which is about knowing yourself and about knowing others and the connection to hard skills. Uh, I guess just definitionally first, can you elaborate a little bit on what do you actually mean by emotional intelligence and what do you mean by sales hard skills? How are those things um, different and the same? So as I frame up the hard skills, I would call those, they've been called solution selling skills, consultative selling skills. So that's going to be prospecting skills, asking good questions, going back to what you said with spin selling, Neil Rackham, and negotiation skills. The soft skills are things like emotion management, empathy, impulse control, optimism, resiliency. And what I have found in my years of combining these two skills is that the soft skills allow you to execute the hard skills and the hard selling behaviors. And I can give a couple of examples. So let's say you've got a really great sales leader, right? And they have laid out the key performance metrics on sales activity, right? Well, to execute the sales activity, so let's say this is a seller that's an outbound prospector, right? Well, first of all, you have to back up because we know in this day and age that generic prospecting doesn't work. It's customized messaging by the title, by the industry. You can get into psychographics. Well, when you're customizing messages and value propositions, that takes delayed gratification. It takes the work to really think about what's the day in the life of my prospect. That's called empathy. It takes work to craft redesign. And then it also takes work to sit there and analyze saying this isn't working. So impulse control is often the reason people don't execute the right selling skills or frankly, master skills. Because when you look at mastery, that takes work. It's practice, it's thinking, and that's all delayed gratification. I put in the work to earn the reward. And that's just one small case. There's a famous study, it was done, I think, with marshmallows originally, and there are yes. YouTube videos of, of other ones. I think it was either Stanford, might have been marshmallow study, where they, they took, I think it was three-year-olds, and they put a marshmallow in front of the kid, and they said, if you don't eat this marshmallow, I'll be back in a few minutes. They didn't say how long. And if you don't eat it, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And then they film the kids. And there's, again, various versions of it. And, and you see the kids, you know, some of them sniff the marshmallow. They'll put their hands under their under their thighs. They will lick the marshmallow. One kid, like, took a bite out of it and then tried to hide the bite. <laughs> and, and then they... And we say he's a felon today. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it, there was a... They then tracked these kids and they looked at their SAT scores. They looked at their, you know, uh, drug use. They looked at their success 20 plus years down the road. And they did find that the kids who, who waited for the second marshmallow demonstrated at the young age impulse control. The reason I want to set that up is because... If impulse control is so important to selling, and, and yet there's the suggestion by the study that impulse control is something very, very innate that's detectable as early as three years old, what can salespeople do who maybe are not off the charts on impulse control in order to improve their impulse control ability? Number one, it can be improved. Uh, that's the great thing about EQ. And you are talking to somebody that has very situational impulse control. Okay, so I am a case study. So awareness is key. So in the EQ world, it'd be called emotional self-awareness, know thyself. So this requires taking time to reflect, 
and then asking yourself, where's my low impulse control showing up? So I am not someone that lacks the work ethic. I will put in the work to achieve something. Where impulse control shows up for me is something can fly right out of my mouth before I have taken the time to think. And that can get you in trouble. So for me, I have to realize, okay, where is this showing up? And then what's triggering that? I also think it takes self-regard, Jeremy, that you've got to have the ability to admit strengths and weaknesses. So as somebody that teaches EQ, you know, I'll be the first one to say, okay, take a look at this profile. Look at my impulse control. But I've learned over the years how to better master it. Yeah, I'm just thinking of Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, in, in this respect as well, that so much of it, right, is this click were response where you do need to understand the situations that you're in that trigger habitual responses. I've noticed as, as you sit around tables of, of senior, or just, you know, let's say you go in and you're in a sales meeting, the most senior person is very often the person who speaks the least. And maybe they've earned the right to do that is a part of it. But I also think it's taking the time to contemplate and saying the things that are the most important things, not just because of their positional authority, but simply because they took more time to think. And probably they've either had the natural skill or developed it to where when you will take time to take in what everyone else is saying, unless you know somebody's story, somebody's perspective, how can you present any kind of a solution, right? So yes, they've actually found in the research that with high-performing leaders, they do score high on self-awareness and emotion management as well, and empathy. And empathy is a gathering skill. So empathy is a listening skill and a paying attention skill. So probably what you're seeing demonstrated by that leader is not only impulse control, but empathy, trying to figure out what's everybody's story in the room? What's behind that story? How can I relate to it? So it's quite interesting to watch very effective people. There's, there's multiple skills at play. As you think about all those facets of emotional intelligence, what do you think are the ones where sellers have the biggest gaps? You know, one that can sometimes get missed, not only in the hiring process, but just in life in general, is really asking yourself how coachable you are. Because the fact is, business moves very quickly. And all of us can say right now, and I was asking this question before the pandemic, how many of you have had your business change in the last three months? Hands go up. Six months, hands go up. So when you take a look at it, if you don't hire someone that's coachable, because there are going to be new skills, there's sometimes you're not going to be naturally good at it. And if you're not willing to take feedback, you will get left behind. It goes back to ability to admit my strengths and weakness. I'm humble enough to take the feedback. And also, I'm pretty good at emotion management because the joke I will make is that everybody wants feedback until they get it, right? So if you're a sales leader, now the textbooks all say, give coaching. Well, I have to tell you, if you've got a pain in the next seller and you've got a coaching session coming up, you're like, oh man, uh, I can't do this person today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move the coaching session off to Thursday. And then Thursday comes, you're like, oh my gosh. Well, pretty soon people quit giving you feedback personally and professionally. So you live a very comfortable life, but you will never hit your full potential. So I think that's an area that can be a blind spot for sellers, not seeking it out or when you get it, not really embracing it. But what if you're getting feedback and there's maybe one piece of it that you actually strongly don't agree with? Is it appropriate during the feedback session as the receiver to push back at that time? Or should you just take time, say thank you, and then take time to digest and think about it? You're talking with someone with low impulse control. So my strategy, I'm going to take time. So I have learned to take time to think about it because it'll do two things for me. 
If I've got an emotional reaction, I'm taking something personally, and I can be the most evolved person on the planet and at times take things personally. So I'm going to make sure I'm not bringing my own bias in. And then if I've gone, nope, I think they've got this wrong. When I go back to the person, I am going to apply empathy because for some reason, from their perspective, I can see why they gave me that feedback. And if I can't demonstrate that I understand their perspective, then they cannot hear my perspective that's going to counter what they just shared with me. I wanted to ask you one more thought-provoking question, which is what's one thing that you believe about sales that is not a common or conventional belief? Not common or conventional. Well, I actually love the profession of sales because I think it's still one of those few professions where you are judged by your personal performance and passion. It's not a profession where I feel out of control, even right now when the world may seem that way. This is a profession where you have high control over your outcome. And I'm not sure that's the case in every profession. So I don't know if that's real profound, but that's my belief. It is profound. And I think there is something that spins out of that, which is you often hear as companies go from small where they can hand pick the best of the best salespeople. And then as you get bigger and bigger, companies you know, need to be able to basically hire a particular profile and have the average person be successful. Do you think that's possible? Sure. And I actually started with a very, very small company that today their division posts revenues of over a billion dollars. Now, I can tell you back when I started with them, Jeremy, great company, great people, but they were hiring people like me. I had no experience. We got one day of training and then it was go get them, good luck. The good news is, is if you worked hard, and and I will give credit to my uh, boss that hired me, Don Trandum, I think you could figure out resilient people, work hard, we weren't entitled, we didn't even know we were supposed to have marketing materials, right? And so we just got after it and then became the number one player. But I have always felt so grateful for that company and, and actually wrote about them in both books because they gave somebody like me an opportunity. I had no resume at the time going into that. So I am a huge believer that there are a lot of diamonds in the rough out there and go get them. Yeah, well, I completely agree with you. And I've seen organizations that do hire the diamonds in the rough and they are able to identify some of those emotional intelligence personality traits and they can then train people on the hard skills. You just mentioned one of your books. And I think as we're recording this, you had a book release yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. So can you tell us just a little bit about that book and how people can find it and how they can get in touch with you if they want to? Yes, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to promote it. The title is Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leadership, and you can purchase it at Barnes & Noble, on Amazon, or go to our website, which is salesleadershipdevelopment.com. Colleen Stanley, she is President and Chief Selling Officer of Sales Leadership, Inc. Colleen, such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you. And I enjoyed the conversation, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. Peter Lepinto is our editor. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.